are entering the Freedom Hut. President Trump doubles down on a plan to possibly send migrants crossing the border illegally to sanctuary city jurisdictions. Plus, the fight over the definition of spying continues because the left doesn't own a dictionary, it seems, or they're just really dishonest. We've got that, plus a whole string of fantastic Freestyle Friday guests for your enjoyment. That and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. We are giving very strong consideration to having people after a 20-day period, because, again, you're not allowed legally to hold them for more than that, we will move them into sanctuary cities. California certainly is always saying, oh, we want more people, and they want more people in their sanctuary cities. Well, we'll give them more people. We can give them a lot. We can give them an unlimited supply. And let's see if they're so happy. They say we have open arms. They're always saying they have open arms. Let's see if they have open arms. The alternative is to uh, change the laws, and we can do it very, very quickly, very easily. Okay? Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. President Trump not messing around on this one. I I have to tell you, I, at first, when the Washington Post reported on this, I thought, really, is that that what they're thinking about doing here? Uh, But then the more I thought about it throughout the day, uh, the more I understand what the plan is here. There's nothing that the president can do right now to stop what's going on at the border. There is no quick fix. There's no executive order. There's nothing that he can do. Uh, His own bureaucracy and the executive branch would object if he told them to violate. Remember, it's not really violating the law. It is violating one judge in the Ninth Circuit's understanding of the law, which is highly politicized and wrong. But that's what the Flores decree has going for it right now. It's all you need. Ninth Circuit says, and therefore it shall be. The Ninth Circuit decides the president does not have certain authority anymore. Apparently he doesn't have that authority, at least not till the Supreme Court sees it. And they take it up. This is not an area where you would think the executive branch could get so quickly and easily overruled. But here we are. Congress isn't going to act. Of course not. The Democrats love this. They see the future of the Republican Party slipping away. They see, the Democrats, a one-party state increasingly looking like a reality. You know, there are a lot of other countries, we don't often think about this, but where, you know, one political party, even in a democracy, is in charge for 30 years, 50 years, maybe more. I think in Mexico, the the. PRI was the one party in control of the government for, I think, 70 years. Technically a democracy, but only one party wins. And we are heading in that direction if we do not get control of what is going on. Uh, This is bad for us in so many ways. It is bad because it is lawlessness. It's wrong. It undermines, if not soon destroys, our sense of sovereignty Uh, The whole the idea upon which a state is based is that there are some people who are of the state and there are other people who are outside the state. Once that distinction goes away, well, then 
what what is what is the government? What is the nation state? What is the polity? Is it anyone who shows up? Anyone who just waves their hand? Do they get do they get welfare benefits? Are you going to fight for a country that treats somebody who showed up yesterday illegally the same way that it treats you? Would you go to war for that country? Maybe you would now. Maybe you would in a few years. Would your children? Would your children's children? Is that government able to come after you for extraterritorial taxation? Can you just go to Mexico for a little while and say, hey, I'm actually not an American citizen anymore because what is American citizenship? Who cares? Oh, but you'd say, Buck, they wouldn't let me do that in Mexico. Oh, you mean the Mexican state has sovereignty. Isn't that interesting? The Canadian state can have sovereignty, but we can't. We're not allowed. Anyone who wants to show up should be allowed to show up. The Democrats squirm on this because it is becoming too clear what they really want. All of that lip service for years, all of the going through the motions. Oh, sure, there were deportations during the Obama years. There were also hundreds and hundreds of thousands of illegals entering the country. Net migration from Mexico is is zero right now. Well, net migration from the third world is going to be a million for this year. So whether it's Mexico or Central America or Bangladesh or, or Vietnam or you name it, we're on track for a million people who are illegally entering the United States of America and they're never going to leave. There is no appetite right now for interior enforcement leading to deportation. Every time there's a story about some corporation that is profiting off of cheap labor and people say, oh, Buck, that's what the market will bear. No, it's actually socializing the costs of the third world moving to this country. Schooling, the health care, English as a second language instruction, uh, you know, the the preponderance of the evidence shows us that people who come here with limited skills from very poor countries, not always, but illegally that come here, tend to be more reliant on assistance of all kinds. And people say, well, they can't get welfare buck. That's not true. You have a child on U.S. soil. Guess what? That's a U.S. citizen. Now that household qualifies for benefits. There are benefits that attach to that child. This is not a an overly complicated thing to understand if you want to understand it. But Democrats just say, oh, we're a nation of immigrants. Nothing to see here. No problem at all. Now, why would, why would Trump discuss sending these migrants to sanctuary cities other than the fact that it just it triggers libs? I mean, it sends the left into apoplexy. I mean, they just lose their mind on this. Um, Nancy Pelosi is one example of just what that's like. Play 21. I don't know anything about it, but again, it's just another uh, notion uh, that is unworthy of the presidency of the United States and disrespectful of the challenges that we face uh, as a country, as a people, to address who we are, a nation of immigrants. I don't think it is a statement of American values to take children out of the arms of their parents uh, to say it might be two years before we reunite them. You either don't know what you're talking about or you don't know what bonding between parent and child, whether it's father, mother, and child is. So what the president is doing is, in my view, terribly wrong. Where are Democrats willing to enforce the law on immigration? Where do they draw lines? This, this is where you have to take the conversation. Uh, let me just also say that there are parents separated from their children. Mothers are separated from their babies across this country every day. 
you commit a crime, which is what a legal entry into the United States is, you will be separated from your kids. That will happen. And I don't hear her crying about how horrible it is that when someone is caught selling crack or selling, you know, opioids or whatever, they're separated from their kids. They might be separated from the kids from years. The kids might be wards of the state after that. Happens across this country every day. No tears from Nancy Pelosi about that because it's not politically useful. This is politically useful, though. Okay, so we can't separate parents from their kids. That's that's too harsh. That's too mean. We can't hold them for more than 20 days. Everyone now who's coming knows this. They understand how to play the system. They're playing the system, which is why we've seen an explosion of migrants showing up at the southern border as family units. What are we allowed to do? I've gotten some Democrats in the last week or so to admit to me, whether on rising or just privately, oh no, we, we should... We should deport those who apply for asylum and are led into the interior of the United States and don't get asylum. They say that they're okay with that. Let me tell you right now, they're lying. The Democrats who say that to you are lying. But they know that just like with amnesty, the only thing you can count on in this whole process is that once they're released in the United States, they're released in the United States. All the enforcement you can fight There's court processes, there's immigration advocacy groups, there's all this different stuff that'll make it effectively impossible. And the Democrats, the moment that the paradigm shifts from people entering at 100,000 a month to, wow, we have, let's call it a million newly arrived Central American illegal aliens in the United States in a whole bunch of different places. Then you know what they'll be saying? They won't be saying, okay, let's, let's make sure everyone shows up for their court date You're not allowed to scam that system. They're going to say, Buck, but these are these are now part of our American family. And and some of them have had children while they're waiting for these court dates because the courts are so backed up. Nine hundred thousand plus immigration cases right now. Nine hundred thousand. They've had children here. I mean, Buck, could you could you really expect that immigrations and customs enforcement that the state is now going to separate a U.S. citizen from his parent or her parent? That's so monstrous. We all know that's what's going to happen. This is, this is what the left is doing. This is We can war game this out and understand what the steps will be. And that's why they'll say right now, sure, there'll be interior enforcement when, when we know that there won't. Just like... The problem with the amnesty bill that Marco Rubio, yeah, that's right, I haven't forgotten, and the gang of eight senators put forward was that the only certainty was amnesty. Everything else was going to be up for debate and discussion. And once you get the amnesty, the political momentum is stronger than ever not to engage on the enforcement mechanisms, not to deport people. A law without consequence ceases to be a law. You had Julian Castro, who's running for president on the Democrat side, obviously, recently say that we should decriminalize illegal crossing at the border. This is as open and explicit an admission of the Democrats' embrace of illegal immigration as you could as you could imagine. What could be more clear than this? How could they how could they, if they wanted to, make it more obvious? So what does Trump do? Trump tries to rattle their cage a little bit. He says, maybe we'll drop illegals in the cities that are sanctuary cities. Now, I 
I think this might be rhetorically effective. I think that as a policy, though, it's not going to have the intended effect. Um, I will break down what I think about this and much, much more. Coming up, team. Stay with me. This is an outrageous abuse of power and public resources. The idea that the administration thought in any way that it would be acceptable to use families and children, human beings, as political retribution against their enemies should uh, infuriate every American, regardless of political affiliation. And I am proud to be the mayor of a sanctuary city. Uh, we believe sanctuary cities are safer cities. We embrace the diversity in Oakland, and we do not think it's appropriate for us to use local resources to do the government's failed immigration work. Yeah, tell that to Kane Steinle's parents, Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff. So proud of her sanctuary status. I would like to ask Libs some questions about all of this. I would like to ask things like, why is this a bad thing? I thought that these, these illegals who are, remember, they have crossed illegally. Then, once they've crossed illegally, they go into an asylum process that they're almost all not going to get asylum from, at which point they'll just be 100% illegal in every respect. And then the Democrats will say, but we can't deport them. They've been here for years. They're now the fabric of this country. But I just want to know, why is this a, why is it a bad thing? If these illegal Central American migrants were to be uh, settled in sanctuary cities, I, I thought that they do the jobs Americans won't do. They're, they're better than Americans. All Americans of all ethnicities and backgrounds, they're better than all of us. Right? This is, this is what, the Democrat propaganda has been now for years and years. So why, do, why are the Democrats so upset by this notion? Are, are they maybe a little concerned about the drain on resources? I mean, you know, what, what is it like for a city like Oakland if, let's say, 50 or 100,000 Central American migrants who have no real legal status in the country uh, and who are, are claiming to flee violence and poverty in, in their home countries. What is it like if, if the city has to deal with it? Because if, if you believe what Democrats say, they just add to the economy. And they just, all they want to do is work. And it's incredible for everybody. And it's a win-win all around. In fact, the Democrat mentality on all this is that our whole immigration system is essentially a joke. Reduce this down. Use Occam's razor like a chainsaw. Reduce this down to its essence. If it's just a question of who shows up and says they want to be here, why do we have an immigration system at all? What is the point of our immigration system if we are being told, forced, browbeaten into submission over celebrating the arrival of Central American migrants at our southern border? Why even have an immigration system? Why not just have it, you know, like an open call for an acting gig? Just show up. The act of showing up itself seems to be enough for Democrats. We know it's enough for Democrats. They tell us it's enough. So why isn't it just based on that? Why do we even have H-1B visas? And why do we have a process that can take years and thousands of dollars and paperwork and visits at the consulate and all this stuff that we have for an immigration policy? When you really just need to show up and say, I'm scared because my country stinks 
and I want to be in America. Again, I, I don't I don't dislike, I hold nothing as people against the people who are doing this. They are just responding to the incentives that the Democrats and the left have put in place. But I'm trying to advocate for the preservation of the rule of law and the sovereignty of this country. And you can't do that if the whole game is just show up at the border and we're going to let you in and you can stay forever. I would want to ask Democrats like Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff, why do we even have immigration laws at all? How can we how can we credibly deport anyone who overstays a visa, who lies on their immigration forms, who how can we credibly deport anyone if we're going to allow 100,000 Central American migrants a month in the United States scot-free? Why would anyone think that they would be at risk of deportation unless they commit a, a heinous crime? And then you know that the left-wing legal organizations that love to represent illegal aliens pro bono are going to come up with some reason why America's failure to properly assimilate the illegals is the reason why this particular illegal did this horrible thing. It's our fault, you see. Just like they say it's our fault that Central American countries are economic basket cases full of violence and drugs and can't seem to get their acts together. It's always our fault. And because they think it's always our fault, it's also forced upon us to try to make amends. How do we make amends? We don't get, we the American people, and again, it's all Americans. This is not about white nationalism. This is about Americanism. This is about the nation state, this community that we all live in. All Americans of all ethnicities and religions and you know, we have this incredible country if we can keep it. We can't keep it if we don't get to determine who comes into this country. Democrats just reject this premise, but this is a, a foundational premise for the nation state itself. If you don't have borders, you don't have a country. It's that simple. Right now, we do not have a southern border. The data is very clear that immigrants and even undocumented immigrants commit far fewer crimes than non-immigrants. The data is clear. Sanctuary cities like Oakland are actually getting safer. Uh, we believe that there is safety and harmony in diversity and inclusion. But what's really outrageous is the way that this administration continues to use petty politics and really just vitriolic rhetoric to advance a racist agenda. This is not American. There you have Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff again. Some of you may recall that name. So why do I know, other than because I just talked about her in the last segment, why do I know that name? Oh, that's right. That is the mayor who tipped off illegals to an incoming Immigrations and Customs Enforcement raid. That's right. She went out in public and warned her community that ICE was coming. You know, she, she decided to yell that, you know, the, the, the police are on the way. Hide. That's who Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff is. Now, as to the, you know, you spend, you can spend almost all your time when discussing immigration just trying to knock down all the lies. But as to how, you know, Libby Schaff 
views all of this and, and tries to put this in the context of numbers, I'll just say this. Um, crime across the country has been going down, with a few exceptions of Democrat-controlled major cities. But, but overwhelmingly, across the country, we are in a, a national crime decline. I, as you know, have a theory that is not, I'm not saying it is proven, but I think the technology uh, is the single biggest driver of that crime decline. But that's just my theory. There is not, I do not claim to have proof for that. Um, I think that it, it affects us in ways that we can't even, you know, I've mentioned it before that car theft has essentially disappeared in most places in this country as a crime. It used to be a, a blight, especially in, in cities when I mean, car crime was terrible, uh, car theft. And carjacking that came along with it, which often involved people who were violent and or even killed for their car, you know, killed. Um, that has dropped off dramatically. It still exists, but it's a fraction of what it used to be. And that's purely a technological advance. Because now if you steal someone's car, guess what? They're going to find it real fast. Um, cops can find it very quickly. So she's saying the crime is declined, but that's irrelevant because she has no, she's not controlling for any variables. And this is, this is just talking points. This is propaganda. Crime has declined in my city, but it's an, a sanctuary city. It, it's more than just crime. I want to get into that part of this, too. But also, you look at state by state, which is where mo most violent crimes, most things that you think of with, with the criminal element of society are not federal issues. They're not federal crimes. They are overwhelmingly state crimes. And states do not track. And most of the major large states intentionally do not accurately track illegal alien uh, crime. There are, no, there are no good statistics on this. There are no real uh, numbers on this. But for those who want just a snapshot of this, look at Los Angeles County, look at the 10 most wanted list and see what it says about the immigration status of the individuals who are the 10 most wanted. You, you, you could say, Buck, that's, that's just a snapshot. That's not scientific. Okay, but they don't have the data. And it's a pretty stark snapshot you will see. There'll be a lot of people that are in the country illegally who are covered in tattoos and are MS-13 members uh, who are on the top 10 most wanted list in different places across the country. So this this notion that immigrant uh, illegal immigrant crime and they're trying to conflate always illegal with legal immigrants isn't a problem for us is just it's just false because you should also take the position that illegal immigrant crime should be zero. There should be zero people, zero angel moms and angel dads should exist in this country. Because their children should still be alive because the illegals who killed them shouldn't have been in the country in the first place. But the federal government refuses to enforce immigration law. Or at least, and then people say, Buck, that's not true. Look at all the deportations. Refuses to adequately and sufficiently enforce immigration law so that it is a deterrent. This is the part that has gotten lost in all this. It is supposed to be a deterrent. If I cross illegally, something bad will happen. I will be arrested. I will be deported. That's supposed to be the thought process. But that's not the thought process anymore. Now the thought process is, if I can just show up with a kid and say that I have a credible fear, I have a, a guaranteed ticket into the United States. And numerically, it's a probably a 95 out of 100 shot that I will never have to leave. I will never have to leave. That's, that's what's happened now. That's where we are. So while I, I can't say that I think the president uh, threatening to drop off, and isn't it, why is it a threat? 
Why isn't it a promise? As in, why aren't sanctuary cities saying, that's fantastic. Please drop all of the Honduran and El Salvadoran and Guatemalan migrants off in my city. I, the, the more, the better. They're the, they're the foundation upon which illegals from the third world who don't speak English are the foundation upon which the American Republic is built. Why isn't that the response we get from that? Why is it, oh, I, you're, why, how dare you threaten us with this? I, I thought that this is what they wanted. I mean, that, and that's what Trump is. Trump is just trying to expose the hypocrisy. I mean, I don't think this is Trump being, uh, you know, if, if doing 5D chess here and thinking that by moving illegals into some of these, uh, additional illegals into some of these sanctuary cities, Democrats will cave and all of a sudden be serious on the issue of immigration. I, I, I don't think that's the case. I do not expect that, that he expects that to happen, but it does raise for all of us to see just what the truth is here of the positions that the Democrats take on immigration. What is, what is, what is the core of the Democrat Party right now on illegals? What do they really think? What is, what is in their hearts? They don't think it's bad. They don't think that it should be illegal. But the American people are not yet by a majority with them on this. Now, I'll, I'll pose this to you. If you get a Democrat administration in 2020, and look, the, the Trump administration, it's not a question of blame. It's just it's just a, an observation of fact at this point. The Trump administration so far has failed on immigration. That's a fact. I, I'm, you, you can tell me, Buck, it's not Trump's fault. Look what he's, I, not, and that's fine. And, and I think that that's largely, although not entirely, true. But the Trump administration to this point has failed on immigration. So if we go into 2020 and the Trump supporting base feels like he did everything he could and the Democrats are the open borders party and gettable voters in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan, and Wisconsin, recognize the Democrats, are the open borders party, we may be OK. We may win back the House and Trump gets a second term. I, I could see that happening. There's some irony that's possible here in which uh, or a situation in which the Republicans actually maintain power because of the failures on immigration, because it has exposed the Democrats for what they really are on this. But there is an alternative scenario, one that I would be remiss if I did not raise to your attention now. What if, what if the Democrats manage to win? in 2020, because the Trump base is frustrated with the lack of results, which are very real, because the Trump base is uh, fed up with all the promises that don't come through. And so they just they don't have to vote for, uh, you know, some commie leftist. They can just not show up for Trump. And let's say you have, you know, who knows, you know, Beto O'Rourke, although his odds are looking pretty long right now, that could change. He wins. Then they're going to push for an amnesty. You know they're going to push for an amnesty. That will be the only fix that they want to talk about. And if they have the votes in the Congress, they will do it. At, at that point, the country will have tipped forever in the direction of there's nothing wrong with illegal immigration, particularly from Latin America. It is, it is as American as, as anything else could ever be. And this issue will be done because we will have lost. That is not a projection for 10 years out. We're going to figure this out in the next 18 months, whether that's coming true or not. If the Democrats win 
it will be all in on amnesty. And if they get amnesty, we won't have to talk about amnesty again because America will be an open borders country. We will have the free flow of people across our southern border and the notion of, of kicking people out via immigration or because of immigration violations will just become a fantasy. Those are the stakes right now. I wish it wasn't so, my friends, but that's where we are. Uh, I've got a whole lineup of fantastic guests. We've got Ami Horowitz, Inez Felcher, the uh, writer and director of Unplanned. So stick around, team. We've got a lot more show coming your way. You vow, standing here at the border, that family separation will never be reinstated. Well, the president made it very clear this week we're not rethinking bringing back family separation. But it's absolutely essential to end uh, a humanitarian crisis that really threatens the security of the American people uh, and, is, and is creating hardship on both sides of our border. Congress needs to act. Vice President Pence is correct that Congress needs to act, and I'm correct when I tell you Congress is not going to act. So where does that leave us? I've seen and been subject to a lot of the talking points this week, and the talking points have all focused on how the Republicans are heartless and cruel. This is a time-worn tactic by Democrats. This is what we expect from them. They can't really make their argument about immigration to the American people because their argument is there's nothing wrong with illegal immigration. There's no downside to illegal immigration. They would like to see illegal immigration continue. They will oppose all efforts to stop illegal immigration. But they won't say that. They'll just act in that manner. And so how do they then shift the narrative burden so that they don't have to make the case, right? So that they don't have to even tell the American people how they feel about this. Oh, that's right. Republicans are mean. They're bad. Look at the family separation issue. It was so terrible. What's going on? Uh, Meanwhile, the same media that is now so focused on family separation that has been, was only in place for a few weeks and ended nine months ago. That same media is just now finally coming around to the very obvious recognition that there is a massive migrant surge at our border and that the sovereignty of the United States is disappearing day by day. Play seven. I think the president and I appreciate the fact that people around the country and even many people in the media are now beginning to recognize that we have a genuine crisis at our southern border. On Tuesday, 4,300 people came across our border illegally along the southern border in its entirety. The vast majority of those people were families and unaccompanied minors being driven by human traffickers and drug cartels that are exploiting these vulnerable families and they're exploiting loopholes in our laws. That's what's happening. Do Democrats have any response for this? Anything that they would like to see happen or any any ideas that come to mind to prevent this from continuing? No, they've got nothing. They've got no because they like this. The status quo is something that they favor. I think the vice president is a a good surrogate on this issue. He has a, a calm uh, and calm yet serious demeanor, which is what you need here. And I've noticed they've started to go after Vice President Pence a little bit more. Uh, specifically, 
Vice President Pence getting attacked by the guy called Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg. Here is what the mayor said about Biden. Play three. I'm not interested in feuding with the vice president, but if he wanted to clear this up, he could come out today and say he's changed his mind, that it shouldn't be legal to discriminate against anybody in this country for who they are. That's all. Yeah. Now, he's saying that he's a eh, Pence. He's saying Pence is a bigot. That's what he's saying. And this goes to the religious freedom issues that are still very much undecided in this country. The courts will have to see which way they go. Um, and I know you know how I feel about this. I mean, from a constitutional perspective, I think it's it's very clear that you should not be able to force somebody to engage in speech. For example, right? You know, this this is the decorating a a cake for a gay wedding versus selling a cake to a gay couple. Selling a cake to a couple? No, you're selling a cake. That is not. That is not speech, but, you know, making somebody engage in expression of ideas, that should be protected by the First Amendment. But, you know, the the left considers that to be bigoted. And here's what, what Vice President Pence has to say in response to Mayor Pete. You know, I've known Mayor Pete for many years, and uh, he knows I don't have a problem with him. I, I don't believe in discrimination against anybody. I, I treat everybody the way that I want to be treated. And, um, Do you but, agree uh, with him that it is matter, God who truth, made him gay? Well, look, the truth of the matter is that all of us have our own religious convictions. Pete has his convictions. I have mine. Right. Well, he argues that your quarrel is with him as a gay man and that he says, yeah. I was born this way and this is the way God made me. That's just not your belief? Well, I, I, think, I think Pete's quarrels with the First Amendment. How so? All of us in this country have the the right to our religious beliefs. I'm I'm a Bible-believing Christian. So, that's the vice president. Engage with his critics on this issue, but uh, they're obviously trying to, well, for Mayor Pete, of course, to, to punch up at the vice president of the United States when you're the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. That, that certainly elevates his profile. And I think he's he might have taken the Beto lane in the Democrat primary. I really believe that. I think that Mayor Pete is eating Beto's lunch. Beto's like, Mayor Pete, like, there's enough sandwich for both of us if you just, like, cut it down the middle. But, like, I want the extra mustard because, like, I like mustard. Uh, I, I don't have a Mayor Pete impression. I should probably work on a Mayor Pete impression. Um, I'm going to be in Indiana this weekend. Speaking of Mayor Pete and Vice President Pence, uh, some of you are going to be hearing this hopefully on Whoa, whoa, out in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Tomorrow, I will be at Talk Tank, assuming all the flights line up on time. It's going to be a kind of tight turnaround. But as of now, the expectation is it'll be good to go. Um, I will be in Fort Wayne, Indiana tomorrow. And if you have not already, please go just type in W-O-W-O Fort Wayne and uh, in Google, and it'll pop up. And you can go to Talk Tank. You can buy tickets. Those of you in the whoa, whoa audience, or if you're in the Indiana area and just happen to hear this on the iHeart app or however, It'll be Tommy Laren, Buck Sexton, Todd Starnes. So I'm not going to lie. It's a pretty pretty Justice League level conservative lineup. At least I'd like to think so. Plus, if you haven't already, you might see the, you might see the beard live and in person, which is exciting stuff, at least for me. Probably not for you, but there we have it. Hour two coming up. After 2,800 subpoenas, 500 search warrants, 19 lawyers attempting to tie him to Russian interference in the election... The president has triumphed again. I guess he's not tired of winning yet. To show your support and celebrate this incredible news, you have to get one of Noble Gold's 
2020 President Trump freedom coins. One side magnificently depicts an image of Donald J. Trump, while the other side lists his major achievements. This commemorative one-ounce coin is the only presidential Trump coin made of 99.9% silver, not silver plating, and is IRA approved. As the price of silver rises, so will the value of these coins. You'll want to hold on to this collector's item for generations. Go to TrumpCoin2020.com and use code BUCK and save $5 off each coin. Again, just text BUCK to 511511 or go to TrumpCoin2020.com and use code BUCK to save $5 off each coin. Available for a limited time, go to TrumpCoin2020.com today. Promo code BUCK, B-U-C-K. Standard text rates may apply. I spy an attorney general giving credence to conspiracy theories. Bill Barr, one of our nation's most respected lawyers, a two-time attorney general, turned in his tortoiseshell glasses for a tinfoil hat. Barr has made really clear, I'm going to be an engine for the president of the United States. I am not the attorney general for the country. The attorney general of the United States in a dog whistle to Sean Hannity is a big deal. Spying. Why does Trump and his cronies, including the new, the new AG, use that word? It increasingly looks like he is doing the president's dirty work here. I don't know how to say that the left has gone crazy other than to just say it. What is what is this, guys? How, how are we even supposed to have a discussion with these people? What happened is spying. There's, there's no other way to describe it. There's no... Uh, you know, you, you could call a, uh, you know, someone's chest pains, a, a coronary, you know, a, a coronary aberration that could lead to death, or you could call it a heart attack. Both are true. And clandestine surveillance of an individual's communications by a government entity is spying. This, this is a definitional Truth. This is not a, oh, I think, or maybe, or, and, and yet you've seen people running around saying the absolute dumbest stuff on this one. Do we have uh, uh, Comey, Sancta Comey on this? Because uh, Comey was running around saying that, you know, this is, oh, clip two. Yeah, play it. I really don't know what he's talking about when he talks about spying on the campaign. And so I, I can't really react substantively. When I hear that kind of language used, it's concerning because the FBI and the Department of Justice conduct court-ordered electronic surveillance. I have never thought of that as spying. If the Attorney General has come to the belief that that should be called spying, wow, that's going to require a whole lot of conversations inside the Department of Justice. But I don't know what he meant by that term. And factually, I don't know what he meant because I don't know of any electronic surveillance aimed, court-ordered electronic surveillance aimed at the Trump campaign. This is, is gaslighting of, of the worst kind. You don't know. That's the FBI director who was at the FBI signing off on this stuff, saying he doesn't know of anything, really because they had a FISA warrant for Carter Page because of his ties to Trump. They ran informants to George Papadopoulos. They use national security letters, which do not go to a judge, by the way. This was reported on in the media. They use national security letters to 
get the personal communications and information of individuals that they had suspicion. They use, and see, this is where they're playing the games. This was not a standard law enforcement operation. This is very important because the slimy liars out there are going to try and mislead you on this. They're going to try to convince you like Comey, like Clapper. They're going to tell you, oh, no, this was court-ordered. This was court-ordered. Yeah, guess what? Guess what? It was through the FISA court, a secret court set up for counterintelligence purposes, not law enforcement purposes. This is not traditional Fourth Amendment stuff. This is the very narrow area of law where national security imperative effectively nullifies, let's be honest about it, the Fourth Amendment. This is, sorry, there's a ticking time bomb somewhere. If we got to cut off your finger to get the answer to the code to turn it off, that's what we're going to do. Meaning this is essentially an in extremis basis for surveilling people. This is the, oh my gosh, you know, to stop a terrorist attack or to stop a spy from infiltrating the United States government, we go to the FISA court. You know, you don't go to the FISA court for a, for a drug deal. You don't go to the FISA court for someone who's doing white-collar fraud. This is not traditional criminal casework at all. And what we've seen is that the FISA court is a rubber stamp. You take it to the court, they say, well, you know, I'm not going to stand in the way of national security. Sure, go for it. But this was a counterintelligence operation, not a traditional law enforcement operation. Counterintelligence means in the realm of of intelligence gathering, dissemination, and espionage, which means spying. All right. Now, some of you may say, well, Buck, yeah, you work the CIA, but, you know, Clapper and Comey, they've been doing this for decades. Yeah, I hate to be the one to break it to some folks out there, but the deep state's not sending us their best. That's one of the things that's been exposed in all this. Not only are they partisans, they're really not very bright or talented. They're bureaucrats. They're hacks. And if you need more evidence for that, all I can do is just point you to some of the things that they've said. John Brennan, former CIA director, took issue with the idea that the CIA steals secrets. This was public. He just said, oh, no, we, we, we don't steal. We, we cajole, we induce, we actually know you, idiot. You do steal secrets. You do steal information. It's not, and, and we, have, we have authority to do this in, in specific circumstances to other countries and other individuals. But you don't do it to Americans. Why? Because it's spying. CIA is not supposed to spy on Americans. And what we found out now is that really the FBI is also not supposed to spy on Americans except under very narrow circumstances. And it goes to the FISA court, but it is spying. There's no way around this. There's no, there's no serious discussion to be had with people that try to suggest that this is somehow not what happened. I mean, this is a rewriting of history that we just simply cannot allow. There's, there's no common ground on the, oh, well, was there spying or was there not spying? Of course, there was spying. And that they're so desperate to try to regain the, the high ground on this issue somehow as to just, just deny obvious facts in history tells you about where they really are on this. Tells you about the, the desperation. I mean, you know, here, here's, here's Chuck Schumer, for example, weighing in. Play 15. When someone is given real information that Russia interfered with our elections, of course they're supposed to look into it. That's part of their job. 
For Mr. Barr to label this as spying, echoing some of the worst conspiracy theorists in the country, he loses all credibility. And that credibility is vital because he'll be issuing a report with redactions. So much dishonesty from Schumer, but Schumer is among the slimiest. He's he's savvy in his own his own me first Chuck Schumer interests before all else way. But he's very slimy. Mueller is working hand in glove with Barr on these redactions to suggest that the redactions will be politicized is to undermine the entire process and to show that they were never serious about Mueller as someone that they really trusted and care about. That was just useful at the time. That was just what they said when they had to say it. They, they, they fundamentally do not care whether the process is honest or not. They just want a process that allows them to bash Trump to hurt the Republicans. James Clapper. James Clapper is out there now trying to clean up the mess that he was a part of making. He's not just an analyst on this. And this is also where I think there's been so much dishonesty and and a lack of transparency on the part of the big media organizations. It's one thing to bring somebody. Look, I'm one who used to work in the CIA, obviously at a low level, but I worked on some important issues and know a lot of stuff about those issues. Right. But I, I was never going on TV talking about the specifics of cases that I worked on or or, you know, individuals that I, you know, covered as part of my expertise or any of that. I mean, it was always at the, at the very general policy level. And and it's about where I think, you know, the direction of the country should go on those issues. Not, well, when I was working on this at this time, doing this thing. Clapper and Brennan and Comey, these were the guys signing off on the spying. These were, I mean, th- this is why, you know, it, it's unprecedented what they did to turn right around from being Intel chief to partisan attack dog on issues they worked on while they were in the intelligence community. This has dramatically undermined the faith that future commanders-in-chief will be able to have in whomever their, that's right, spy chiefs are. Damage from this will last for a long time, but they're now in cleanup mode because they realize Barr, he's going to have access. He's going to be able to see everything. He's going to know what's really hap- what really happened here. And he's not scared of these people. He's not going to back down. This guy, Barr, is a pro. And they realize they're not going to be able to shake him or throw him off this. There's a really big problem that that he's looking into. And that's why he got Clapper running around. This was just earlier today, trying to explain, okay, well, maybe there was spying, but here's here's why there was spying. 16. To the extent that there was surveillance of anyone, it had it was occasioned by contacts with Russians who were uh, targets, validated foreign intelligence targets, and we sort of lost sight of that and 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 the threat that the Russians posed because that's how this all started is the Russian meddling. The Russian meddling, which was so minimal in terms of impact. That when Obama knew about it in the summer of 2016, when it was brought to his attention, you know what he chose to do? Nothing. Nothing. Meddling in elections through propaganda has been going on since the early days, in this country, since the early days of the KGB. The only difference now is that it's happening with Facebook puppets instead of 
uh, or sock puppets on Facebook instead of a newspaper that's getting funding from the, you know, the communists. But that was all happening. It's been happening for a long time. No votes were changed. The election was not thrown. But they, after the fact, needed to create a narrative that would have supported all the things that they were doing to try to destroy Trump from within the government. Let's be very clear about the facts. A Demo- the Democrat administration of Barack Obama had its political appointees at the very top, the apex of the national security apparatus, open up a spying investigation on President Trump's campaign on flimsy partisan evidence that was never verified, that was unvetted, and then once they began it, they were invested in the righteousness of their cause such that even when it should have been clear to any person with two brain cells to rub together that there was no collusion between Trump and Russia, they kept going and kept going. And then they leaked selectively to the press. Then they worked with their allies in the media and the Democrat National Committee to get this storyline out there. To freak out half the Democrats and give the other half of Democrats who were smart enough to not buy into this, or maybe it's the other one-tenth of Democrats who were smart enough to know this was all nonsense, a cynical excuse for why Hillary lost that they were all too happy to latch on to. That is what happened here. That is why we cannot allow them to shift the narrative, to change this around, to pretend that history isn't what, in fact, we know it to be. I, I, I've got some more on this team. We'll, we'll hit a quick... I've, we got to stay on this a little bit. I'll be right back. Thank God we have an attorney general who calls spying for what it is. In late 2015, early 2016... Spying began on the Trump campaign. That information leaked that led to what they considered to be legal spying that began that they've acknowledged that they'd started doing in at the end of July. Legal spying doesn't make it doesn't make it right just because at the time it was legal. You know, a a lot of things have been legal that weren't right. <laughs> so we can, there's, a, there's different ways to approach this problem. But even if they stayed within the, the technical discretion that they had to open up a case like this, the lack of, of, of transparency in that process and the lack of, of good judgment and the checks and balances that are supposed to prevent exactly this kind of abuse is, is breathtaking. It really is. Um, and I'm... Very sure that the Democrats are going to have some some explaining to do. And, and Comey and Clapper and Brennan are going to have a lot of people that are asking them questions that they don't want to answer about just how the heck it got to the point that you had three FISA renewals against Carter Page. That you had this guy, Stephen Halper, sitting down for a conversation with George Papadopoulos and really inviting the conversation. And then we're being, we were being told by the New York Times, if memory serves, that because Papadopoulos said that maybe there were some emails coming, which is a rumor that I had heard, everyone had heard this, it got out there that they opened up a full FBI field investigation on. They sent the FBI to go investigate this, look at this right away. I mean, they really believed all of this. You know, I, I think that part of what drives 
the dishonesty here. I think one of the major problems that has to be addressed is that there's a, a, a sense of embarrassment. There should be a sense of embarrassment. But there's a real sense of embarrassment from the people who went along with this, who were supposed to be professionals. They'll never admit this publicly, but I, I have a hard time believing that Andy McCabe is really, or, or Sally Yates is really as, as stupid and naive and easy to mislead as they would have to be to think this is all true. I mean, I don't think that Sally Yates is so dumb and she escapes a lot of criticism on this. You know, I've always been very, watch out for Sally Yates. Remember, she was the hashtag resistance acting attorney general who refused, refused to enforce the travel ban. You know, she was the one who just said, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Remember, the travel ban was upheld by the Supreme Court. So interesting that she was so certain that this was not something that should have been done. Now, I know that there are various iterations of the travel ban, but she didn't say we need to adjust the travel ban. She said not doing it. She was also the one who came up with the pretext for the General Flint interview of the Logan Act. This is straight out of the a federal prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich playbook. The Logan Act is so vague and so unconstitutional as a law that no serious prosecutor, no serious prosecutor has ever, ever brought a Logan Act case against an individual in this country. I think there might have been one in like the 1800s. I mean, but, you know, nobody would bring this up today. But it was the that was the pretext for an interview. Sally Yates is not stupid. She just knew that that was the cover. And that's what's been going on here. Oh, well, maybe maybe we we didn't tell them that the DNC dossier, the DNC funded Christopher Steele dossier was oppo research. But, you know, we we told them that there was there was private money behind it. You know, we, we told them a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I mean, they were just uh, they know the bureaucratic system well enough that they were able to move this along when any clear minded, intelligent human being at every step of this process should have said, not only is this on flimsy evidence, not only are we opening a spying campaign with just fantasies underlying the whole thing, but we're doing it in a presidential election against a campaign. This should have been considered nuclear level waste, radioactive stuff. You better be darn sure you've got this locked down. And not only was it not locked down, it was all just... A fraud. They tried to defraud the American people of Trump's victory. That's what they were doing. Our first order of business is to present Planned Parenthood's Employee of the Year Award. Abby Johnson. I'd be the youngest director in Planned Parenthood history. You'll actually be in charge of the abortions at your clinic. I have a chance to make a real difference. No matter what you do for the rest of your life, you're still going to be a baby killer. The only thing that's changed is you, Abby. Can you even hear yourself talk right now about these procedures? These are little babies. But the one thing that all experts agree on is that at this stage, the fetus can't feel anything. Sorry to bother you, but they need an extra person in the back room. I saw it, and it was like it was twisting and fighting for its life. That is the trailer from the movie Unplanned that is out in theaters now and is surprising at least the mainstream media with how well it's doing, which means how well it has been attended. People want to see 
this movie. It's about the story of former Planned Parenthood director Abby Johnson and her conversion to a pro-life advocate. We're now joined by the writer and director team for the movie Unplanned, uh, Chuck and uh, and Carrie. Thank you so much for being here. Chuck Konzelman, Carrie Solomon, appreciate it. Thank you. Not a problem. All right, so uh, let's uh, let's start with you, uh, uh, Carrie, the writer. Um, t- first of all, are, are you at all surprised at the reception this has had? I mean, I know when I saw earlier this week, I think it was over the $13 million mark, which for an independent film is, is pretty incredible. Yeah, we're past $14 million now. Uh, we're not, you know, anytime a movie does well, you're happy, you're excited. Uh, you know, we're humbled by the whole thing. and But we felt from the beginning, honestly, that this was an anointed movie and that uh, that there were people, you know, half of America, more than half of America, is against abortion. And so you have this silenced majority just waiting out there, and we brought the movie forward, and people are just ecstatic crazy excited about the movie and uh and you know chuck i'm wondering did you try to get a main so you know i interviewed abby johnson earlier this week so i'm familiar with her story and for everybody listening she was i believe the youngest ever director of a planned parenthood saw an abortion procedure that she assisted in and had a complete conversion and decided that this was the taking of a human life and she would fight against it for the rest of her life um and so it's she has an inspiring personal story but we know how the politics stack up on this one. And so, uh, Chuck, did you approach any major studios about partnering with you? I mean, what was your reception like from what you, I guess you consider mainstream Hollywood? Yeah, well, you know, we knew that we would have no chance at the studios. Actually, we suspected that the studios, if they had a chance, would actually buy the project and shelve it, never allowed to see the light of day. So, you know, we knew from the outset that we had to get completely independent financing. We had to be outside of their production, outside of their post-production. We actually had hoped, at least, that we would be able to rely on traditional marketing, marketing through social media and, and so forth. And, and we were shut down at every turn. Every chance they got to throw in a cheap shot, they did. So we went 0 for 9 in our attempts to license music from the studios that actually was owned by the studios. You know, we had Wow, they they wouldn't even let you license music for the movie? No, we actually wanted to open with Cindy Lauper's girl just wanna have fun. You know, we have a Halloween scene in there, trick or treating, so we wanted, you know, Danny Elfman's only Boingo's uh, Dead Man's Party. And uh, from some of the from some of the mainstream slash liberal media we get well well, you know, their soundtrack's not good. It's a little bit Christian influenced. You're like, Yeah, why do you think that is? you know? But but what was really annoying and aggravating was Google. I mean Google wouldn't accept our banner ads. And that's really, uh, we, well, before that, we couldn't get on cable television for the most part. Fox News and CBN were the only people who would take our ads. We were turned down by Lifetime, Hallmark, Up TV, Cooking Network, Travel Network, DIY. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So, you know, we were reduced to just social media, and uh, Google wouldn't accept our banner ads. And so, and with an R rating, which is what we got tagged with by the MPAA, we were forbidden from running our trailer before anything that wasn't another R-rated movie, and that's yeah, Carrie, can you explain? Can you explain that to me, Carrie? Why, why would you guys get an R rating for this movie? Well, it's a political R. Um, the way we looked at it was, first of all, it's an ex-Obama appointee. He used to be Assistant Secretary of State, uh, so his political leanings were pro-choice. He runs the MPAA. And uh, there are large parts of America that will not go to see an R-rated movie. A lot of parents won't let their children go to see it. Ironically, 
by giving us an OR. They're using basic Christian virtue or the virtue of these families against them because exactly what they don't want to, exactly what they want to happen is which is to not let families see the movie and succeed by giving an OR. And uh, so that's what they did. You know, it was unfair, but there it is. Now, how can people see it right now? Is it only available in select theaters? Is there an online, you know, downloadable that you can pay for version? Will it be on iTunes? Because I think a lot of people listening right now would like to see your movie unplanned. There are 1,400-plus theaters across the nation. Obviously, we will release it on DVD and electronically, uh, you know, streaming and so on and so forth. But right now, uh, we're between fourteen and 1,500 screens, uh, so we're all across the nation, give or take. And we will probably not be available. This is, yeah, the, uh, for those who have, are thinking it will show up on my Netflix subscription, you know, uh, our representative had a meeting with Netflix last week, and uh, their 139 million subscribers will probably not be treated to this uh, because he left the room saying there's no appetite in the room. Because, you know, again, that's a Hollywood entity. So, um, you know, th- that's part of the looking to suppress this message. And I don't expect we'll be on Amazon uh, streaming either because they're actually financing, funding, and producing a pro-abortion movie as we speak. Uh, they're go, they're producing, uh, this is Jane, which is the story of an underground abortion provider network in pre Roe versus Wade, Chicago. So I don't expect a warm reception there either when we show up. Right. And across the country, what, what's the reaction been like to the people who have seen the movie that you've been talking to? It's been profound. Um, we have people, I mean, the number of data is unbelievable. We're getting thousands of emails, texts calls of people who were pro-choice that are saying, you know, I never knew, I never understood, uh, and they're becoming pro-life. Post-abortive women and men are basically, I mean, some of these calls are unbelievable. We had one woman call us up, and she said, 55 years, I've struggled with the fact that I had an abortion every day of my life, and now I'm finally free. The movie is not about condemning any side or saying any side is right or wrong. What it's about is hope and forgiveness and love and finding the truth. It's about this. And so, you know, the reaction to that, we treat the Planned Parenthood people fairly. We don't we don't use bias. Everything in the movie happened. Everything is told. And uh, we're going through all the other sides. So, I mean, Google is labeling us under movie subject. It's drama slash propaganda. I mean, really? Yeah, that's amazing. You know, uh, guys, we got we got to leave it there. Unfortunately, we're, we're at we're at time. But I just want to say uh, to the both of you for what you've done here by bringing this movie forward. I know you're probably receiving a lot of heat from it. But uh, Chuck Consulman and Carrie Solomon, writer, director team for Unplanned. Thank you for joining us, guys. And everybody out there, if you can, it's in 1400 theaters. Go see Unplanned for yourself. Don't let big Hollywood decide what you can and can't see and what the truth is supposed to be. Thank you, gentlemen, so much for joining and good luck to you. Thank you. All right, team, we have uh, more coming. We're going to talk about the progressive left and the games they play to try to shut down debate. That's coming up. Printing on the front page to circulate all around New York City an image that is incredibly upsetting and triggering for New Yorkers that were actually there and were actually 
in the radius that woke up one morning or were in their schools and didn't know if they were going to see their parents at the end of the day to elicit such an image for such a transparently and politically motivated attack on Ilhan. This is, we are getting to a level where, the, where this is an incitement of violence against progressive women of color. Ah, there you have it. You kind of knew it was coming, right? You, you knew it was likely that Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Cortez, the, the kind of big three of the progressive female left, uh, that they, in the Congress, they're now circling the wagons around the de- defense of Omar after she said that 9-11 was a thing that some people did. Which is, uh, yeah, that that's going to get individuals upset. That's going to make them think that there's really something wrong with the the judgment of the person that would say such a thing. That that's not surprising to anyone. But see, this is what the left does now: is when you say things that they don't like, because they don't want to engage in the argument. They don't want to go in the back and forth, the intellectual exchange over: Do you have a point? Is what you're saying worth hearing? Uh, can you maybe convince me that you're correct? What they do is speech equals violence. Now, this is one of the most uh, clear instances of where the college campus rhetoric has transferred over into real adult life. Speech equals violence was much more common on college campuses a few years ago than it would be in the general national political discourse. You'd hear this because they they would, and this is when also you began to hear the beginnings of snowflake as a term that was used, right? People would talk about the snowflakes and, and safe spaces on campus. Right? Why would you need a safe space? Well, you need a safe space if you, you cannot, you, you truly cannot handle the words that someone is saying. They make you feel unsafe. Well, why would those words make you feel unsafe? That seems a bit extreme, doesn't it? Well... If you feel unsafe because those words are tantamount to close to violence, well, then it's completely reasonable that you would take that position, right? If, if it's almost like they're attacking you physically by attacking your mind with words, then you do need a safe place to go to. This was very common on campuses, and now it's very common in real life. Uh, hate speech laws and the way that you are now criminalizing uh, legitimate political arguments. And you know, look, here, here's a perfect example of this. I just yesterday and I was I was doing rising and we're talking about Chelsea Manning and and I said she for Chelsea Manning. And I didn't I didn't mean to. This is like when the term undocumented comes out of my mouth and I just want to just grab my tongue and just smack myself in the face. no. Don't use their made-up, politicized terms. Use the real terms. Someone who is in this country without legal justification is not undocumented. They're an illegal alien. That is the term in federal code. That is what it is called. I'm not allowing other people for their own reasons to change the language. I'm not going to use the words that they tell me to use for political reasons. Chelsea Manning is a male. A biological male, Chelsea Manning, only has one set of parts and it is not female. And yet here we are on, I think, all of the major 
news channels. All of them. I, I'm not sure about every show, but I've heard it in all the major news channels. Everyone is now expected to refer to Chelsea Manning as she. And this is where reality and politeness for me collides. I, you know, I, I don't, I would never advocate for um, making somebody feel badly just because I, I don't, I don't like people to, especially look, I, I, I think that those individuals who are transgender have a very, uh, a very difficult road ahead. I think that they should receive a, a lot of, of support from friends, from society at large. Uh, I think that they're very troubled a lot of the time. I'm not saying all of them, but I think a lot of them have deep psychological issues. Uh, and, and I think the medical literature would back that up. And it is incumbent upon all of us to be to be kind, to be decent to one each to one another. But there's also a, an obligation on each of us to be truthful and to be honest and not to to bend the knee to delusion. And when I'm being told that someone is a to be referred to as female when they're actually male, I, I'm not comfortable with that because that's not true. You know, what if I was told that I had to refer to a 50-year-old as a 15-year-old because he felt that way? And there are people that take this position. I know right now it's fringe, but guess what? It was fringe 10 years ago to say that men in a, on a high school track team should be able to compete against women if they feel like women. Now that's not fringe. Now we're being told that that's the expectation that we should all have. Should I be forced to tell someone who's 50 years old or to, to say that someone who's 50 is actually 15 just because it makes them feel better? Should the law recognize them as 15 with all the implications that that would have? Or vice versa? Could a 15-year-old say, I have the, the, mental, the mental age of a 50-year-old, so I would like to vote, I would like to be able to buy tobacco, I'd like to be able to get married and drive a rental car, and all these things that are age-restricted? I think we'd all say no. There's a biological reality here. Why is it that age matters in the law? It matters because there are developmental changes that occur. It matters because there is a, an understanding of the wisdom of age that is just true for all of us. You can't make the same kind of decisions when you're 13 as you can when you're 30 or 60. And yet, to say that Chelsea Manning is a he and not a she is almost to the left now, tantamount to violence. It is misgendering, which some countries in the Western world now want to make a crime. Deadnaming, referring to Chelsea Manning as Bradley Manning, that can get you banned from Twitter. So this is now in our own country. Saying that speech equals violence is a massive invitation, a giant open door for the most politicized kinds of censorship and for the suppression of ideas that not only trouble the left, but ideas that are necessary if we're going to be living in a truthful society. Speech equals violence is a tool for the suppression of truth, and it is wielded to that end. We need to understand that that's what's going on here, and we need to call it out when someone like AOC is saying that Criticism of a public figure, in fact, a member of Congress, Ilhan Omar, is, quote, incitement of violence against progressive women of color. It is absolutely not that. And to say that is to suggest that any criticism of women of color in the Congress or more broadly in American society, if they're public figures, is somehow, you guessed it, an act of violence that debases the very concept of violence, which is something that 
should never be introduced into a, a political and ideological discussion. Um, but that's what they try to do. They conflate these things purposefully. It's a tactic. It's a tool. It's dishonest, but unfortunately, it is also very, very effective. And you're going to see more of this going into the 2020 election, I can assure you. Friday fun day, everybody. Freestyle time. We have our friend Inez Felcher-Stepman joining. It's been a little while since Inez has been by the Freedom Hut. And here we are getting to talk to her. She is a senior contributor to the Federalist, also the Independent Women's Forum. She knows a lot about many things, and she's now going to share that with us. Thank you so much, Inez. Thanks for having me, bud. I should probably just get clarity. I say Inez and Inez back and forth, and you're too kind and polite to correct me, but which one is it really? It's Inez, but that's close enough. The only one that really uh, scrapes my ears, so to speak, is Inez, but... uh Either Does anyone ever go Ine, like try to make it more French? Ine, you know, like easy, but no, not really. That was that didn't make any no. sense. OK, let's keep going. Equal payday <laughs> was last week. <laughs> Equal payday is not really a thing. So what, what? why do people think it's a thing? You know, as you study this. Look, this is a myth that's been debunked over and over and over again. Um, but regrettably, apparently, we have to debunk it one more time. Uh, it is not true that women make 77 or 78 or 79 cents on the, on the dollar. That's just a total myth. That number is collated by looking at the median income of women on average, looking at the men, men's median income on average, this is, you know, literally comparing all different kinds of jobs. You're comparing, you know, the wages of secretaries to the wages of engineers and then coming out on the other end and saying this is a discriminatory pay gap. When, of course, the reality is that this pay gap is due almost entirely to the choices that women make on the whole, which are different than men. So I, I actually uh, I think this is I, I'm, I'm experimenting with something new, just saying just love the pay gap. The pay gap represents freedom. It represents women being able to make different choices than men, more feminine choices than men. And, hey, why are we assuming that the choices that men make have to be the standard? Um, why aren't women allowed to uh, navigate our own lives in the way we see fit, see fit without it becoming a political problem to solve? Uh, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And even you look at professions like uh, veterinarian uh, veterinarians and they tend to be very well paid and highly educated and for whatever reason dominated by women that's right so there are some of these professions that are highly paid that are dominated by women there are a lot more that are dominated by men um, so for example four out of five of the top paying college majors have large majorities of male students enrolled well the reverse is true the five lowest paid uh, majors so women have large majorities on all but one of those um, so some of those are, you know, chemical engineering, aerospace engineering um, on the higher paid side. And on the lower paid side, we find things like, um, for example, social work. Right. So uh, women tend to choose, first of all, fields to go into that are more interpersonal. And a lot of those fields, not all, um, but a lot of those fields are and end up being lower paid. But um, these are the fields that women choose to study in college and then choose to go into after college. And then once they actually get to work, men work about 83% more overtime than women. Even among full-time workers, um, women work fewer hours than do men. Um, men work more dangerous jobs, which often come with a little bit of boost in pay because, let's face it, um, we'd all like a little less danger, not more in our lives. Um, 
And and even if you remove all of the subjectivity, right, from the, the sort of how um, employees are paid, right, you take the, the discrimination factor entirely out of it, um, rideshare companies that pay drivers completely by um, completely by formula, right, there's not a boss deciding who gets paid more than somebody else, those uh, services also result in a pay gap uh, between men and women because men and Wait, women... Wait, hold on a second. You're prices. telling me that Uber is part of the patriarchy. <laughs> Computers are. Computers are part of the patriarchy. Formulas and math are part of the patriarchy. Um, no, and, and, and like I said, I'm not sure why the, the male frame on this is, is the one we should be taking. I mean, we could just as easily talk about, for example, a time with family gap or a time with friends gap. Uh, between men and women, where women tend to spend uh, more time with their families, more time with their friends, more time uh, cultivating those interpersonal relationships in their lives. And I'm not sure why the fact that women choose to do that is some kind of grand political problem rather than something to be celebrated. After all, we are all incredibly privileged to live in, in a, a country that is so wealthy that that wealth has been created by, by the capitalist system, um, a country that's so wealthy that we can choose these kinds of things. Uh, we can decide how we want to balance work and home life uh, because, you know, for most of human history, there was no choice. Everyone had to, to work to stay alive. Now, I, I, I just want to ask a very broad question here. Uh, Inez, you're, you're married to a wonderful guy, have an adorable dog and and are female are a woman. And yet do not subscribe to leftist feminist philosophy. What do these uh, what do the women who are on the woke left who complain about the pay gap? What do they really want? You know, it changes every six months, so it's hard to say. I I really like Kevin Williamson's formulation of the feminist movement as a bunch of uh, the three of the right kind of women say I want it becomes a feminist issue. Um, No, I mean, I I think it's just ridiculous to to perpetuate this idea that women in 2019 in America are some kind of victims. I mean, we're all incredibly privileged, as I said, to live, if you look back in human history, we're all incredibly privileged to live in in a country like we have, to have the prosperity and the freedom and the opportunity that we have. Um, Women have the majority now, get the majority of, of both college and higher degrees. They own the majority of wealth in this country. Actually, women are trending towards two-thirds of wealth owned in this country. They start the majority of small businesses. Um, it's, it's just ludicrous, the idea that women are somehow an oppressed class in American society. It's just not true. And it's, it's very disappointing and damaging, I think, to young women to send them off into the world with this view that uh, men are their enemies, that men are their competitors, um, and and with the idea that they've got to be exactly like a man in order to live a happy, you know, empowered life. I just think that's a lie. And Bella, can you give some clarity on uh, I saw that there's which state was it? And I might be asking you a question for which you don't have a ready answer because I didn't ask you about this before we did the interview. But uh, isn't there now a state that's saying that transgender isn't there now a movement to say that transgender students have to be able to compete on women's teams in high school? Which, which state was this? This just happened. Well, it's not It's not a state. It's a, um, and there might be states that have similar laws, but it is actually being proposed in the U.S. Congress. Um, ah, yes, in Congress. Act, yes. The Equality Act, among many other things, would ensure that all public schools, both K-12 and at the university level, uh, would not be able to discriminate between men and women with, with regard to sports teams. Uh, and of course, this would completely eliminate basically women's sports. Um, 
if, if a, a man who, uh, you know, decides to compete as a woman uh, is able to, for example, um, you know, run track with, with biological women, I mean, that's just not a fair fight. It's never been a fair fight. Uh, men are physically stronger. Um, and, yeah, no, so it's unfortunately it would be actually easier to deal with if it was just, you know, a crazy state like California or uh, and I'm sure some states do or are looking at similar laws. But actually the law is being proposed for all of us. It's being proposed at the federal level. And what what do the, your your uh, feminist ideological opponents say when you say things like men are stronger than women? Do they do they take umbrage at that? <laughs> Uh, you know, these days it's hard to be to be certain what anyone will take umbrage at because uh, there are so many things. In fact, it might be faster to list the things that are not offensive, considered offensive by somebody on the left these days. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they argue that men and women are not substantially different, not just um, there's still, I think, a majority of people even on the left who acknowledge the physical difference both between men and women. Um, but they deny that those differences have any real substance or, or meaning um, in terms of who we are as, as people. So, um, and, and that's just not, first of all, just not scientifically true, right? The party of science. Um, differences between men and women's brains can be observed in utero, right? That early in human development, there are differences between men and women's brains. Um, and that results in, you know, men and women making different decisions, not just about career and life, but about, you know, a whole bunch of other things. And that's fine. Uh, I've never gotten this, this uh, relentless drive towards sameness as a quality rather than, um, you know, a quality of opportunity rather than, than looking at whether or not, um, you know, men and women have opportunities to pursue life the way they want to pursue it. Instead, we're sort of on this relentless drive to make men and women interchangeable automatons and that's just not only is that, you know, a fool's errand, it's just no fun, right? Um, they're, they're killing all the fun of the dynamic between men and women when they do that. Yeah, I, I, I like ladies being ladies. I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of it. I, I think that's a good thing. Uh, everyone should check well, out what... I will not be using you for their commercials then. Oh, I know. Well, I got a beard these days anyway, so Gillette's probably not <laughs> for me. Inez Felcher-Step and everybody, thefederalist.com, where you can see her stuff. Also look for her on Fox News. Inez, give the hubs a big hug for me, and we'll talk to you soon. Always. Thanks for having me, bud. Team, we'll be right back. I'm here on the campus of the University of North Carolina, where UNC and Duke are holding a joint conference on the conflict in Gaza. So I came here to get a sense of the perspectives of the people attending the conference. This was a major conference with hundreds of students, professors, and administrators who spent a weekend bashing Israel and whitewashing the terrorist organization Hamas. If it only stopped there. This is a professor who I asked about her views on the spate of attacks in New York by black teens on Jews and synagogues. Blacks have a lot of also reason to be angry at Jews now. Wow. Uh, that's... Not what you would expect, I think, a professor to say when asked about anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic attacks. Or, or maybe it is what some people would expect professors to say these days, given what's been going on. My friends, uh, that was from a, uh, a new documentary film put out by our, fr our friend Ami Horowitz, who's an independent filmmaker and self-described gonzo journalist. And Ami has joined us now to spruce up our Friday with his tales of, of Aminess. Hey, man. Hey, Buck. How you doing, man? 
I'm good, dude. So, so this you were at some conference. Give us a little bit of just a little bit of additional backstory here, and then you can explain the crazy that you heard on college campuses. So, I'm sitting on Bondi Beach in Australia a couple weeks ago, and just you know, scrolling, scrolling through uh, newsfeed, and I happen to see that this is you know anti-Israel conference, or they 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 describe it as a conference on Gaza, which means is code word for anti-Israel. I was like, ah, you know what, might be have some fun to go down there and kind of, you know, poke the bear a little bit and see what I come up with. So, um, changed my plans, flew out to um, North Carolina, was on the campus of uh, the University of North Carolina, but it was a joint conference between Duke and UNC, and I, I can't understate, this isn't like some kind of fringe conference, Buck. This was a major conference that was sponsored by every major department and every major school. I mean, the School of Pharmacy, for God's sake, sponsored this conference. And um, they also got a quarter of a million dollar grant from the U.S. government. So it's bad enough that, that all of these departments, schools, and our federal government were sponsoring an anti-Israel conference. That in of itself is a travesty. But what happened was just beyond shocking. I got there, and of course it was the usual uh, bashing of Israel, the whitewashing of Hamas, the whitewashing of Hezbollah. I know it's sad that I kind of see this as par for the course for a major university, but I did. And then the featured entertainment came on. It was a Palestinian rapper who, oddly enough, just days later, totally independent of this, had this glowing um, uh, article in the New York Times about this guy. Anyways, he gets up there and goes, guys, this is my, and remember, this is, let me lay the stage. This is hundreds of people in, the, in this auditorium at the at UNC in Chapel Hill. He gets up and goes, this is my anti-Semitic song. I'm like, hmm. He goes, let's get anti-Semitic together. And people go wild. He's singing a song about having sex with a Jew. Everybody's kind of, he's, it's audience participation. They're singing with him. He goes, guys, you're not being anti-Semitic. Oh, let's take it up to no Gibson levels. I kid you not. At the end of the song, he goes, you guys are so beautifully anti-Semitic. That's literally what went down. He was the featured entertainment. And then I said, well, I wonder, I mean, I don't know, are, is everybody here kind of feel that way about Jews? So I started asking students, professors, administrators, a couple of questions. And the main one was this major damaging and wholly anti-Semitic trope that Jews, Jewish money controls the U.S. government. And that's why I asked them, does U.S. money control the U.S. government? And Buck, I, I, can't, I can't overstate this. I probably spoke to 30, 40 people. Two said, not really. And the rest said, absolutely, totally well known. This is what we're seeing at our university. So you expect, you know, you expect anti-Semitism from neo-Nazis. You don't expect it in the halls of our U.S. Congress, in the halls of academia, but that's exactly the situation we find ourselves in today. How is it possible, Ami, that this kind of overt, and this isn't dog whistle, when someone's yelling, I'm going to rap about how we should all be anti-Semitic, I think that's considered anti-Semitic. Uh, yeah, you know, I think so. You, you usually don't, you know, this isn't even like the Ilhan Omar coded language of it's all about the Benjamins or whatever. This is just like, hey, everybody, let's just be anti-Semitic together for a while. I, you know, there there are some contexts where, you know, if you're anti-Semitic, you're going to get in a lot of, you're, you're look, you're going to suffer professional consequences and, and people are going to shout you down. But it, it feels almost like college campuses are a, a, an anti-Semitism, like, Free zone, or not? Not free zone. Anti-Semitism safe zone. There you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got to get your right, your right woke terms there, bro. Uh, look, you're you're absolutely right. And the question is, how 
could this be? I will tell you the answer. Now, it used to be that you're exactly right, that there used to be like a, a, a veneer of protection against anti-Semitism where you just said, look, I'm not anti-Semitic, man. I'm just anti-Israel. I just hate Israel. Now, look, I believe that if you hate Israel and you don't attack Sudan, North Korea, Iran at all, then you're anti-Semite straight up. But okay, you can have, you can still hang on this, 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 this thin film of, no, man, I'm not anti-Semite. Now, that's all gone away. And I'll tell you why it is, because really it's not about Israel at all. It really is about Jews. Specifically, it's about intersectionality. And intersectionality is what has kind of created this new leftist anti-Semitism. That really wasn't new. It was always there, but now it's really being uncovered and become naked. And it's this idea that, look, they look at Jews as being all wealthy and rich. By the way, I'm still looking for my Jew check. I haven't got it yet. Uh, but they all see us as being these powerful, wealthy people controlling the world. And the poor, and, and since they're titans of capitalism in their mind, therefore, they are the instruments of the oppression of the downtrodden. That's really what it comes down to, if you really want to ask me. It's not about Israel. It's really about money, like everything else in the world. And they look at Jews and say, you guys are on top. Other people are down, and therefore you are their instrument of their demise. You're the reason why they can't succeed in life. And that's really what's been uncovered now in the last couple of years. And, and by, I'm sorry, last like 10, 15 years. Right? This whole notion, and I want to I put, put to lie the, the, this, this idea that this has only happened in the last two years. It's not. It's been happening. The increase in anti-Semitism has become significant over the last 10 years, during the entire Obama administration and now the first two years of the Trump administration. And, but the, the, the real lie is that the growth is, not coming, is coming from uh, white supremacists, and that's not true. They've always, those whack jobs have always been there. They always will be there. The real growth is coming from the Muslim community and from the leftists uh, across the United States, particularly from college campuses. Ami Horitz, everybody, check out. Uh, where can they go to watch your, your latest doc, Ami? They can go to AmiHorowitz.com, a uh, repository of all things Ami. AmiHorowitz.com, that's where you can find it. And Ami, if the, if the left ever gets you and, and you disappear off the radar, I'm, I'm calling some of my old colleagues. We're going to get you, buddy. Don't worry about it. We got I you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. All righty, my friend. You keep doing what you're doing. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right, team. We'll be back in just a few. Friday, everybody, which means we have special treats galore, including one of the only men I know who can pull off a silk scarf in all seasons, in all conditions, indoor, outdoor, patio, rooftop, basement, you name it. This guy's got it covered for you. Raheem Kassam is, in fact, with us now, back from jolly old England. He is the global editor-in-chief of the newly- Newly released and revived Human Events, which you'll tell us a bit about. Raheem, great to have you back, my friend. Hey, thanks, Buck. I appreciate this sartorial endorsement as well, because it does get quite hot wearing scarves in the summer, but it's worth it to hear you talk that way about it. Yeah, I mean, you're the only guy I know who can pull it off. You know, everyone else is walking around in shorts and flip-flops. We all know Raheem Kassam would not be caught dead in flip-flops, folks, because he's not a barbarian. Uh, but Raheem, tell me, about, tell me about what's going on with Brexit right now. Yeah, look, it's very important, very interesting, because um, Brexit and the Trump phenomenon, the MAGA movement, are inextricably linked, as I think most people recognize. And the forces by which those two movements were tried to uh, try to stop them happening, um, try to thwart them, try to bound them up legally. Uh, you know, you guys had the Mueller investigation here in the U.S. Uh, we had... Uh, 
we've now had three years worth of legal battles and, and back and forth over Brexit. And this Prime Minister, our Prime Minister, who campaigned, remember, for the Remain side, for those who wanted to stay in the EU, she's made a big bungled botch-up of Brexit so far. So now we're at the point where Britain will, three years later, be fielding candidates in a European parliamentary election that's due to take place next month. And that's fascinating for two reasons. Number one, that means Nigel Farage is, going, is coming back into the fold. He's got a new political party called the Brexit Party. And secondly, it's interesting because it just shows that the, the government, and again, I'm going to link this back to what's been going on in the US as well, the government and especially the Conservative Party, that's, you know, the Republican Party's counterpart in the UK, have not been able to see the will of the people through. And you think about it, Buck, that's quite similar to the way a lot of Republican politicians behave. You know, they'll campaign on all sorts of issues that they know are red meat to the base. But once they're actually here on the Hill, very little of that occurs. And so Nigel set up this new party, the Brexit Party, and he's taking support from the Conservatives, from the Labour Party, from the centrists. And more, most importantly for him, he's getting major business and celebrity endorsements at the moment, too. So what, what are we expecting then to happen, Raheem? We're, I mean, we've been hearing about this for some time, but what are the next, the next step, the months ahead look like for Brexit? So you'll recognize that a lot of people after the 2016 referendum from the Remain side, they started throwing accusations out like, oh, we have to have a second referendum because uh, the people didn't really know what they voted for. Well, these European parliamentary elections next month are basically going to act as a second referendum of sorts. It will be up to the electorate to decide whether they send uh, pro-Brexit members to the European Parliament or anti-Brexit members to the European Parliament. So this will hopefully draw a line under the rhetorical claims um, that people didn't know what they were doing when they voted for Brexit. And that means, in, in, in impact and effect, and, and pragmatically speaking, that means the government can no longer hide behind uh, that level of rhetoric to stop it delivering Brexit. And so I think after, and my prediction is this, by the way, that you'll get a slight majority of Brexit MEPs representing Britain in the European Parliament after next month. Um, and with that new power, those MEPs can go to Brussels and start making more demands uh, than the Prime Minister has failed to make so far. Now, Raheem, uh, tell me what you're up to with human events, by the way. Tell me what the latest is here, because I know you've got big you've got big plans. And for those who don't know, tell them what human events is. Yeah, well, human events is the oldest conservative magazine um, in the United States. It was founded in 1944. Um, it soon became the favorite of one Ronald Reagan, and he credited it with his conversion from liberalism to conservatism uh, that in turn led him to be uh, president. Um, unfortunately, over the last couple of years, human events has been uh, left a little bit by the wayside um, by its previous owners. Um, so I went along and bought it, <laughs> as, as you do, um, earlier this year. And if people go to humanevents.com, they can see we'll be launching it in about 18 days' time um, on May the 1st. Uh, it's a beautiful website. It's been impeccably designed uh, in magazine-style format, Buck. And, and I say that because I was the one who designed it. <laughs> if people go Raheem, known for his modesty, now. everybody, but also, but also <laughs> not just his sartorial flair. So what's going to happen now that you've got this thing up and running again? 
So we're turning it into a, what we call a MAGA zine, right? M-A-G-A in all caps, like those, like those big red ones you see at the Trump rallies. Um, it's going to be both an intellectual hub and also a, a hopefully funny meme-style place where, where younger people want to go and get the arguments and put them out there. But most importantly for us is it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring together all the populist nationalist stories from all over the world, just like we talked about Brexit. We're going to be talking about what's going on in Hungary, what's going on in the United States, what's going on in Brazil, what's going on in Israel, uh, and show how all these populist nationalist movements need to be further intertwined. And, and that, that, I think, is going to bring something very, very new to the U.S. media marketplace. Raheem Kassam, everybody, you, you heard about his big project here. And unlike Brexit, his is actually going to happen. <laughs> so there you go. Thanks, Buck. I appreciate it. All right, my friend. Have a fantastic weekend. RaheemKassam.com, everybody, for more of his latest. Team, we'll be right back. Like soft butter on warm toast. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. It's time for Roll Call. Friday Roll Call is very special. Because it's the last roll call of the week, which means that I will miss all of you for, for days and days. I will not get to talk to you for a couple of days. It makes me sad. I miss the team. People ask, what are you doing your weekends, Buck? I say, well, probably going to think about what I'm going to tell the team on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. But uh, maybe I should also do some other things like spend time with some people uh, in my general physical vicinity and orbit. But discussions for another time. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you want to send me your thoughts and messages. I enjoy this part of the show very much, so please be a part of it. Kent, I let a pop culture reference slide for a while, but you said this is why we can't have nice things a few months back. An obvious reference to the T-Swift song. I am a man in his 40s, but I hide behind my 12-year-old daughter. We even went to see Taylor Swift's show, Shields High, OSS, Kent. T Swift is very talented. Let's let's just let's just be frank about this. Let's just say it the way it is. T Swift, very talented. Um, so there's that. Doctor Rick, what's up, Doctor Rick? I don't know if you get these messages, but in case you do, do not pay your hospital bill. Talk to your hospital's billing department. Ask for the doctor's note. Since the doctor really didn't see you, they better not be charging codes for a doctor's visit. I would ask what CPT codes are being submitted since you were only triaged and didn't get any other services. Ask for the CPT codes and fees associated with this one. You know, Richard, I appreciate it. Uh, and, and thank you for sending me this because, yeah, I'm, I was outraged at the, the bill from the uh, emergency room. I, I did not actually get seen by the doctor. The doctor came in for a second, and said, oh, I have to go see somebody else and then walked away and never came back. Um, so I, I, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to fight this one a little bit. You know, I'm, I, they've sent me two different bills, one for like $500, one for more like $1,200. So they clearly aren't sure what they should bill me, but it's just, look, it's just wrong. It's wrong. If, if in other, other circumstances, people tried something like this, you'd say that it was fraudulent or, you know, that it was, it was borderline, honestly, borderline theft, but a hospital is just going to say that they're going to charge me $1,200 to take my blood pressure and make me wait in a room for five hours and not have anyone show up? Really? That, that seems like not something that should happen. Um, but you know, hospitals and, and, big, and, uh, and pharmaceuticals, that's where a lot of the excessive 
cost is. Why is the cost so high? That's a whole other set of issues, but that's where the excessive costs are uh, predominantly found in the healthcare system. Andres, howdy, quick note. While listening to your podcast at work, I heard you comment on something your listeners were experiencing. There are certainly transgender commercials during your podcast, which is not something I care to indulge in during my Freedom Hut experience, just an FYI. Lastly, your beard profile headshot is superb. Andres, um, transgender? John, do we have transgender? Com- A podcast promo with trans? Huh. I... I, I, guys, I don't know anything about this. Uh, look, I just put out the I put out the podcast of our show, and then I leave the the uh, ad side of it to other other folks. I don't have any input into that, but I, I might have to start checking in a little bit to make sure that you know. Yeah, I, I don't want Planned Parenthood ads running on my podcast. You know what I mean? That's there are there are lines. This is not nom. There are rules, so I might have to look into this a little bit. Thank you for the heads up, Andre. I'm not. By the way, to my knowledge, there has never been a Planned Parenthood commercial on my show. I'm just saying something like that i there there are there are rules there are rules um david writes buckman beard props it's funny how the same leftists who circle the wagons around ilhan omar downplaying the role fundamentalist islam played in 9-11 are the same folks who say openly that white people in the 21st century are still culpable for slavery and of course any nut that goes on a shooting spree exemplifies trump voters even the liberal who almost killed steve scalise Do they not know how transparent this is or do they know that their base just doesn't care? Yes, uh, David, I talk about this pretty frequently and it's it's where the the left will decide that one incident is representative of a whole group versus a series of incidents that are not representative of the group at all. So you have terrorist attack after terrorist attack. I mean, people who say that let me just do a, a very quick breakdown of an analysis I've done many times. People who will say that the greater threat in this country is uh, white supremacist terrorism compla- uh, compared to jihadism, uh, they first off skip past the lethality of jihadist terrorism over the last 20 years. They just go for attacks, and attacks can often be things like graffiti on the wall of a, of a building or you know Islamophobic uh, voicemail messages or something like that. When you look at lethality, serious attacks, jihadists are far and away the biggest threat in the country. And then you also look as a as a percentage of population. Uh, if you're talking about just white supremacists, therefore just people who are are white, um, and they're about sixty percent. Uh, you know, the only the only precondition for being a white supremacist, I suppose, is generally you have to be white. Sixty uh, percent of the American population is white. About 1% of the American population is Islamic. So if 60% and 1% are uh, committing terrorist acts in a as a function of overall numbers, this is just breaking down the numbers, that tells you a lot too about where the real threat tends to come from, doesn't it? Uh, so this is why the, the story the left likes to tell about the real threat being white supremacist terrorism is not really what they think it is. But uh, we will... Have more on that for you. Roll call continues on here with our friend Keith, who writes, Buck, the beard looked great last night. Stop fretting about it. Well, Keith, thank you. I'm, I'm getting comfortable with the beard now. Now it's now I've been bearded. You know, now I feel like it's, uh, it's pretty good. If you're concerned as I am about the juggernaut of big pot being pushed on us as a medicinal good for society, 
then please read Tell Your Children by Alex Berenson. It's an eye-opener. He's known primarily for a series of best-selling spy novels, but for years, he's primarily, uh, for years rather, he's covered the prescription drug industry for the New York Times and knows how to read studies and research papers. You have great guests on your show, and Alex would be another. He's well-spoken and intelligent. He was on Tucker's show a few nights ago for reference. Keith, P.S. Marijuano is what Mexican newspapers call pot in the last century, and it apparently means madman. Well, Keith, I, you know, this I'm very interested in this because, first of all, I think that a lot of, of drugs that people take, a lot of different substances have side effects that we don't even really fully understand. We don't even really, you know, we, we can't comprehend the, the long-term um, implications of. And I'm sure that's true of marijuana. Uh, I'm sure that there are things about marijuana that are, we know, other than like, I'm going to eat a pound of jelly beans, maybe two pounds of jelly beans, and then some Reese's peanut butter cups, and then some chunky monkey ice cream, and just like, oh, it's delicious. You know, yeah, we all know. You get the munchies, you get lazy, you know, you maybe get a little paranoid. I mean, this is what people tell me. This is what people tell me. Um, I obviously, as somebody who is in the agency and then post-agency, I have not done I have not done any illicit substances in, wow, it is, it is almost 20 years now. Almost 20 years without touching. Man, I have, lived a, I have lived a pretty clean life. I mean, not like Little House on the Prairie level, but, but pretty, pretty drug-free. Uh, so there's that. So I'm not, I'm not somebody who's an advocate for marijuana because I am a, a, a big fan of what it does. Although I have seen and, and heard from medical professionals that the effects of it for certain, uh, for glaucoma and, you know, you've heard this too, I'm sure, for certain chronic pain, it's very useful. And is it worse for you than Oxycontin? I, I don't know. But should people be coming home from school and smoking weed every day? No. The answer is no. But I'll also tell you, I don't think that people should be having drinks every day. I think that drinking is, this is a personal philosophy thing, so don't, I'm, I'm not, you know, passing judgment on anybody, but you know, I kind of think of, of alcohol almost the way that people think of cookies or chocolate cake. Like, it's fine to have in the mix. I like a good glass of tequila or some wine, or, uh, but it's not a, like, two or three times a day thing, you know? You don't want to eat chocolate cake two or three times a day. You want to have one piece of cake maybe when you come home from work. I get it. Maybe two. It's a lot of cake, but, you know, sometimes you have a rough day. Uh, you, know, you think of these things more as treats or more as uh, as w things to celebrate with instead of, in the routine. And I mean, certainly marijuana is not something that I would add. First of all, if you're under 18, you shouldn't touch any of this stuff. And I know that kids do that, but you know, I, I'm a big proponent for when you're in your development phase, don't do any of that stuff. And you know, there's the, there's my government side or, or rather laissez faire when it comes to government side on this, where I think that the government shouldn't be trying to mess with people uh, and certainly not imprison people for marijuana. But then there's also the medical and scientific side, which I have more curiosity about. I, I don't, I think weed should be legal at the national level. I really do. Um, that doesn't mean that I advocate people using it, uh, certainly not using it excessively recreationally. Um, but look, I, ha I have my little puritanical status streak. I'm aware of it. I try to keep it in line. That said, go eat some delicious food this weekend. Get some sleep, get a nap in. Hang out in the sun if you can, you know, go, go take care of yourselves, team. Next week, I think the Mueller report's going to finally be out, so it's going to be a doozy. We're going to be here in the hut together. I am looking forward to it. You have your orders for the weekend, team. Have a great, great time. Enjoy yourself with friends and family. Until Monday, Shields High.